is being recorded. All right. Okay, and the story begins. Welcome, everybody. Um, we, we should have in mind in the merit of our Torah study, all those who need to and need a speedy recovery should have it sooner than expected. And hopefully, God will bring soon bring an end to this confusion. Amen. For everybody. Okay, so actually tonight, today, was the last day of the month of Adar, the Jewish month of Adar. Tonight is Rosh Chodesh, tonight is the new month of Nisan. And the Talmud says that when the month of Adar comes, we increase in joy. Can I pause for one second? Yeah. Uh, um, if everybody could put themselves on mute, except when you speak, that would cut, every, that would, I'm getting a lot of feedback. I think everybody else is probably hearing it also. Uh, but if you put yourself. I don't right, know how to do that. Okay. In the center, well, in, in the screen, at the bottom of the screen, um, you have a bunch of buttons, yeah. right? Oh, like on the left is the mute button for yourself. You see that? I got it. I found it. I was busy on. <laughs> So if we're if we're not if we're not currently actively speaking, let's put ourselves on mute so we can hear Josh really clearly. Thank you. Okay, and if anybody has anything to say, you can always unmute. Um, so Adar, the Talmud says, when the month of Adar comes, which is the month that Purim is in, we increase in joy. And right now we're going from Adar to Nisan. The month of Nisan is the month that has Passover in it, the month of redemption, the month of freedom. And the connection is that joy leads to freedom. Active joy, not just situational joy, not just I'm happy because, not just excitement. There's a difference between excitement and joy. Real joy is an exercise. And in chapter 26, two chapters ago, five lessons ago, three, four lessons ago, we elaborated on the importance of joy. Because joy equals, what's the word I'm looking for? Enthusiasm, not enthusiasm. There's a different word. It just escaped. Action. Alacrity. <laughs> there we go. Joy equals alacrity. When, by the way, if I'm, if I'm pronouncing it wrong, you let me know. <laughs> you could unmute yourselves and let me know. <laughs> you got that exactly right. Okay, there we go. On the, contra uh, um, on the other hand, sadness equals lethargy. I don't know if I'm pronoun Did I get it right this time? Lethargy. Lethargy, lethargy not, yeah. like a mental block there. It's not just not going to happen. Sadness, um, depression, depression in the literal sense of the word, negative feelings that are depressing, weighing on us, lead to lethargy. And in our relationship with God, it's of utmost importance that we have alacrity because if we don't have alacrity, how are we going to succeed? How is it possible to succeed if we have stuff weighing on us? The analogy that the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya gave, was you have two people wrestling with one another. The winner is not just the stronger one, the one who is physically strong, the one who is also emotionally stronger. The person who is more resilient, the person who has a who has who is more motivated. Motivation, alacrity, from joy. It also comes from not having. And through the past, throughout the uh, several past, throughout the several past chapters, I'm getting tongue twisted today. I'm sorry. Uh, chapters and we've and, and discussions we've had. We've discussed the important. Uh, we we've discussed different ideas, different things that are that may impede on our motivation. Whether it's frustration from uh, material challenges, financial challenges, or other challenges we may experience, and we experience, we discussed how the negative things that we perceive are not perhaps that bad. It's just a perceptual bad. It's not necessarily actually bad. We discussed the idea of guilt. We discussed the idea of shame. We discussed the idea of impulse control. Now, in this chapter, chapter 28, we're 
trying to pray, we're trying to study, we're trying to engage in our relationship with God in a spiritual relationship. And I'm getting distracted, I'm getting intrusive thoughts before in chapter 27, we discussed intrusive thoughts that take place throughout the day, uh, not necessarily in the middle of spiritual or, or, or holy affairs. But now I'm in the middle of praying and I'm getting all these distractions, all these intrusive thoughts. I'm feeling all my lusts. And it's horrible timing. It's uncomfortable. What am I supposed to do? Right? That's this chapter. By the way, just to point out. Um, chapter 28. Numerical value of 28 in Hebrew. It's Chavchet. That's 28. If you look there, it says Perak Chavchet, chapter 28, which spells the word Koach, strength. Because this chapter is going to give us the strength to be able to pray peacefully with alacrity. They say if you want to solve the world's problems, go to the synagogue and pray the Amida prayer. Silent Amida prayer, that's when that's that's when that's the best way to solve the world's problems because that's when all the great ideas come to mind. <laughs> that's when all the distractions come. <laughs> and it doesn't feel good to be distracted. It doesn't feel good to be distracted of things that we're ashamed of, the things that we don't even we shouldn't be thinking of ever, let alone prayer. How are we supposed to deal with this? What is our reaction? What is the appropriate reaction? So if you look on page three eight I'm gonna read the first bold paragraph. It's in the middle of page three eighteen. Where I read, got out of fuel. You inspired me. It's time for me to take a swig too. <laughs> take a hit. L'chaim. <laughs> I don't have any snacks. I do have some L'chaim though. There we go. L'chaim everybody to life. Okay. So here's what it says, the middle bold paragraph, page 318. And even if while worshiping God in Torah study or devotional prayer, you begin to fantasize about physical indulgences or have other inappropriate thoughts, so what are we supposed to do? So number one, don't turn your heart to them. Don't give them attention, rather divert your attention away from them immediately. So step number one, when we feel that we are getting intrusive thoughts, just stop thinking about them. Somebody, um, somebody, somebody once came to the Rebbe Rashab, Rabbi Shalom Dovber, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, fifth Rebbe of the Chabad, um, Chabad Hasidic movement, asking for advice. Kept getting distracting thoughts, intrusive thoughts. So he says, my advice to you is stop it. <laughs> stop giving these thoughts attention. If I'm going to give you advice on how to negotiate these thoughts, how to negotiate with your evil inclination, how to negotiate with your animal soul to leave you alone, all you're doing is engaging with your animal soul, which is exactly what it wants. You're just fueling the fire. My advice I'm not giving you any advice. He says, just stop it. <laughs> and this is essentially what the al Tereb is saying right here. Don't turn your heart to them. Divert your attention away from them immediately. That's just like the uh, Nike uh, ad, right? Just do it. Just do it, exactly. And usually that's um, you know easy to follow for people who naturally just do it, but... Uh, the people who don't uh, naturally just do it, then they need the, you know, steps two and three. So I'll stay tuned. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. He says, and then if you look at the next line, he says, don't be a fool and try to elevate these inappropriate thoughts. There is a concept of elevating negative thoughts. Everything that is negative has a source in positivity. And if you get to the core of everything, get to its real essence, you get to its real core, you can reveal how it's actually a holy thing. So let me move to 
this a few classes ago. Somebody once said to if that's true, how would you explain atheism? How could that be a godly thing? How could, if everything is good, everything is godly at its core, how could atheism be godly? He said, when somebody else is suffering, it's time to be an atheist. <laughs> Don't going to help you, you help him. <laughs> um, everything at its core is healthy, it, it is holy, is godly, but that doesn't mean we have the ability to redirect the, the, um, those thoughts. So for it seems like that has some limits, um, meaning like I, I, okay, I know I'm limited, so maybe there's a way to do this, but I cannot fathom that you could ever take, for example, murderous thoughts and elevate that. That's beyond my ability to understand how that can ha ever happen. Okay, exactly, and I'm glad you mentioned that. And the Altered is going to agree with you. Okay. Altered says here, he says, don't try to do this at home. The concept may exist, but trying to do the con but but trying to implement it says, don't do it at home. It's beyond our prey grade, and that's not our job. Our job is not to elevate that that type of at least not yet. Our job is to avoid it. Okay, so, for example, that's 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 not really what I was getting at, though. I guess what I was getting at, I I, I guess you you did. You did address what I said, but I said the wrong thing. Um, what I meant to say was that um, you said everything that's negative has its source in positivity. How does that apply to some murderous thoughts? That's really the question. Okay. Uh, I'll give you... Let me give you a different example. I, I, don't, I, I don't know if I can answer the question. But I'll give you another example that's not as extreme. Okay. A lustful thought, an inappropriate lustful thought is essentially, if you strip it down to its core, no different than wanting to be passionate about God. It's a drive, it's a strong drive. And if you strip it down to its core, it could be a holy thing. It's just a strong drive, and it's misguided. It's going the wrong way. It's going toward the wrong thing. If you strip down the idea of lust and what you're, and not focus on what you're lusting toward, and redirect it, that that concept does exist. Um, I give the example of lust, not the example of murder. I don't, I don't know how that would apply to murder. I don't, I don't know the answer. But but do you see what I'm saying? The the concept that there's a negative emotion. There's a negative passion, there's a negative thought, and if you strip it down ultimately to its core, it could be redirected towards positivity, it could be elevated. The Altered Epic says that's not our job, don't try that at home. No, I, I, I see that. that, that's why I kind of preface this with like, it seems like there may be a limit here. <laughs> and, exactly, exactly. Uh, I, I don't know how that would be applied to murder. Uh, so, so if I could ask a, a, a sort of a tangential question, I think might help. Um, is um, in the Ten Commandments, right? There's the the Ten Commandments, and the first one is there's one God, and you should love God, right? And then later on the list, it it has uh, you know do not murder, and um, somewhere you know close to the top, there's this thing about idolatry, and uh, one 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 person identified idolatry is not necessarily liking something bad, but it's liking something more than you love God, right? Or, or liking something that distracts you from loving God. So then if we look at the Ten Commandments, and the first commandment is to, to love God, and then the later ones are signs of, you know, distraction or being... Um, taken away from God, the, the thought of murder is essentially anger that um, is, is taken to um, hatred and destroying something. But I think uh, God does give us examples, or Hashem, I should say, right? Hashem gives us examples of times when we should be angry and we should, you know, change things. And... There, there, I think, are examples of when it's right to be mad at something. 
Um, so, 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 so murder, the thought of murder maybe has its um, root in the positive passion to do something or create something or act on something that is misaligned or misplaced towards hurting someone. I mean, for example, the best time to go to the gym is when you're angry because you're never going to get a better workout than, than going to the gym angry. It's the same idea. It's some sort of passion. Yeah. Just directed towards something negative. Okay, good, 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 good illustration. Good example. In other words, there is an idea of taking these ideas, these feelings, these passions, stripping them down, and going to its core, elevating them somehow. Right? Um, whether it be ang whether it be stripping down murder to its ultimate core, um, anger, perhaps not even anger as much as a um, what the word is, but some sort of discipline, disciplined uh, passion, as opposed to a, a more positive passion, but it still could be all a thing. He says on the top of 19, this is vice is meant for tzaddikim, it's meant for holy people, people that have totally internalized their divine soul. And the reason is because they don't have their own inappropriate thoughts, so they're elevating other people. But if I have my own inappropriate thoughts, I'm stuck down here. How could I elevate something up there? As he says on the last bold paragraph, or, or the second to last bold paragraph, sorry, toward the bottom of 319. But when your own inappropriate thoughts caused by the evil in your heart's left chamber pop into your mind, how could you possibly lift them upward when you yourself are tied below? So our job is not to try to uplift these thoughts. Our job is not to engage with the thoughts, with negative thoughts. Our job is to simply ignore them. As the Rebbe Rishab says, just stop it. <laughs> Don't engage. There's, there's certain things in life. We'll talk about this more soon. That just simply don't deserve our attention. Intrusive thoughts are one of them, especially during davening, during prayer. So we're, what's the, so here, here's the actual advice that he says. Transition to the bottom of 319. Can I ask a question real quick? Yeah, go for it. Um, so the, it says, meant only for Saudi Kim, is that referring to, um, when you have an, an inappropriate thought divert um, your attention, or is that, or is that just um, about not elevating? Okay, good, good. So the, the idea of elevating it is not our job. That's for tzaddikim. Our job, the common person's job, the regular person, us regular people, is just divert, divert our attention. Don't think about it. If it's a lustful thought, if it's an inappropriate thought, I mean, definitely the assumption is that we're not going to facilitate it. That would be inappropriate. But we're not even going to respond to it. At least not during prayer. Maybe we can deal with it later. But, but at this point, I'm engaged in doing something holy. I'm engaged in a relationship with God. And by the way, this is a great, um, this might be a great lesson for other relationships. You have a relationship with God. You have a relationship with anybody. There's something external distracting that relationship. Block it out. It doesn't deserve your attention. And it's the same thing with our relationship with God. I'm trying to pray. I'm trying to study Torah. I'm trying to do something right. I'm trying to do something like, don't engage. Block it out. Now, I may think that the fact that I'm getting these inappropriate thoughts is an indication that I'm doing a horrible job praying because if I did a good job praying, I wouldn't be getting these thoughts. Which is very logical. And the Al-Tadeba reframes our whole understanding of the mechanics of our relationship with our evil inclination and says, no, no, you're not necessarily doing a bad job praying. He says, hold on. He says, first of all, the bottom of 319, he says, nevertheless, don't allow your mood 
to deteriorate from inappropriate thoughts, top of 320, and allow this to bring sadness and self-loathing upon your upon you during worship, which needs to be carried out with an abundance of joy. When I'm praying to God, when I'm studying Torah, when I'm engaged in a relationship, I need to have joy. Because like as we said earlier, we can't succeed without joy. If I don't have joy, it won't work. Don't let these neg these negative thoughts, these inappropriate thoughts, these lustful thoughts gum up the project. Don't let it get in the way of our joy. He says, on the contrary, next bold paragraph, we should strengthen and intensify our concentration during prayer. We should intensify our joy. Again, this all implies, read between the lines, it implies that joy is an exercise, it's not a reaction. Joy is something that we have to intensify. It's not just going to happen. Excitement is a reaction. There's a, a great situation, right? I have my Diet Coke, I'm excited. <laughs> it, it's a reaction. But joy is not a reaction. Real joy is an action. It's a choice. It's an exercise. And when we need it most, it's most difficult to come by. Um, but it's so important. Now, where is my joy coming from? What do I tell myself? I have to remind myself that these negative thoughts are coming my animal soul, from my evil inclination. They're coming to me. Okay, so don't open the door. Why do I have to be upset? Why do I have to feel bad? There's a nudnik knocking on my door. I'm going to feel bad about myself? Not me. Somebody's knocking on my door, and it's somebody I don't want in my home. I don't beat myself up because I have, because I'm so vulnerable. I have somebody knocking on my door. Okay. Just don't open the door. Don't answer him. It, it's like, it's like teeth. You ignore them, they go away, right? <laughs> Corny joke, I know. I know. Um, <laughs> you say teeth like your Teeth, yeah. Okay. Well, that's like the guy door he doesn't go away peacefully and nicely he takes your i mean the teeth they painfully go away over time right okay that's true <laughs> true 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 <laughs> and the example he gives you have two people wrestling with each other just like our wrestling analogy that we said earlier in chapter 26 he comes back to it you have two people wrestling with one another when one person starts prevailing what does the other guy do that's when he starts intensifying his efforts. When you're fighting with somebody and they start intensifying their efforts, what does that mean? What does that show? They feel threatened. That's why they're intensifying their efforts, because you're doing a good job. And it's the same when it comes to the battle with our animal soul. When we're praying, the animal soul is distracting us. It doesn't mean we're doing a bad job praying. Actually, on the contrary, we're doing a good job praying. And the animal soul feels threatened. Because if you're doing a good job praying, who's taking up more space in you? Who are you internalizing more, the animal soul or the divine soul? At that moment, you are more internalizing the divine soul when you're engaged in that spiritual connection, whether through prayer, whether through Torah study. The animal soul feels threatened. And now that he feels threatened, he has to fight back. It's the greatest compliment you can ever get. You're getting distracting thoughts during prayer while you're trying to focus. Take it as a compliment. That compliment should motivate us. Any thoughts, questions, comments, controversy? A mindset shift. That's a good one. Okay. A big yeah, definitely. It's a it's a reframe. It's real it really is a big reframe. It's it's kind of a it, it's a big shift in how we understand prayer and how we and how we understand what's going on. The classic understanding is if I'm being distracted during prayer, and the alternative actually says this, he, he actually tells us what this paradigm shift is. Usually I'm praying, I'm doing a bad job. I, I'm getting distracted during prayer it means I'm doing a bad job. And he says that would be true if you had one soul. The whole premise of Tanya, as we discussed 
in chapter one and two is that we're not just one person with two different inclinations. Two different, uh, but we're actually we have two different personalities within us. We have two different souls within us trying to battle, trying to take us over. Not a, a soul means the definition of soul. As we said in chapter three, the way I think and feel the way I perceive life, my cognition. The way I think of it, my intellect and emotions, the way my, my perception on life. And there's the divine way of perceiving life. There's the selfless way of perceiving life. The, the mission oriented, God oriented way of perceiving life. And there's the animal impulsive non-intentional way of perceiving life. And these two perceptions, these two personalities are constantly battling. If I had one soul, then you're right. One soul could only do one thing at a time. So you're either praying or you're thinking about these thoughts. And if you're thinking about these thoughts, you're doing a bad job praying. But I have two souls. I want to I wanna ask you something. Sorry. Mm-hmm. If... If you know when you learn to drive the car the first time and you're concentrating on the road and you're doing such a brilliant job and you can't nothing else can distract you because you're making sure that you're doing an awesome job and you're into it and you're understanding it and you're learning the rules. And is there not a time when you're just so used to praying that you can do other things like you can turn on the radio, you're used to driving, turn on the radio, listen, read a book, read your text, you know? So it's like if you can keep your prayers, um, authentic and real and make them meaningful each time you do it, then the other thing shouldn't distract you or come in because you're not, it's not just going through the motions, it's becoming a part of your body and part of your, your doing, and it should be part of every time understanding, every time being purposeful and meaningful. It's interesting. It's a good point. That's, you know, so- that's a really good, uh, a really good comment there, Sharon, because, you know, it kind of speaks to um, when something becomes so familiar that you begin to do it by rote, right? So, and that's that's something we never really want our davening to get to is a point where we do it by rote. We want to be engaged fully at all times, right? So, but you're right. I mean, it, there, there are certain parts. I mean, when, when you said that, it made me think about certain parts of the prayer where like, yeah, I just I just know that I don't even have to think about words and concentrate really about doing sure. it, right? Um, but that's the wrong place for your head to be, right? You really don't ever think about it as um, being rote. You really want to fully engage. But but that allows for two different things to fight against each other because you're not you're used to it. You need to like change up your prayer, or make it more meaningful, make it relevant to today. You know, like for you. For sure, it's. It's a battle. The Zohar, um, authored by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, one of the earlier books on Kabbalah, says Sha'at Tzlasa, Sha'at Krava, the time of prayer is a time of war. Because that's when we're really fighting with our animal soul. I'll tell you a story, Sherry. You just remind me of a story. It was in the shul, synagogue of, I believe it was, it was a, a chassid, a disciple of the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya. Name was Isaac Humler. I believe it was him. If I'm getting this right, and somebody in his synagogue was leading services as the chazan of the cantor, and was zipping through through the prayers, zipping through like a train station, just like 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 an auction, like an auctioneer. <laughs> and he goes up to him afterwards. He says, "What's the rush? Why are you going so quickly?" So he says, "I'm trying to leave no time." Or distracting thoughts to come in. So he says, okay, there's no time for distracting thoughts to come in. But there's also no time for good thoughts to come in either. <laughs> Sometimes we have to be, you know, you got to risk it to get the biscuit a little bit. Sometimes you have to be a little bit vulnerable. And allow ourselves to experience prayer meaning and to understand it and to feel it but with that comes the risk of other thoughts coming in, especially once that threatens the animal soul. When the animal soul feels that threat, it, it's going to, you know, there, there is this battle between the two souls and there is going, it is going to, um, to pipe up, if you will, 
and that's okay. That's okay. Ideal, ideally, if we're fully engaged, we should not, you know, there, there should be no time, there should be no space for distraction. I think that's what you were saying, Sharon, right? Because if I'm fully engaged in prayer, there's no space for that distraction. But you're right. If I'm fully engaged, the distraction won't come in the door. But it still may knock at the door. And when it knocks at the door, what we're saying is the reason why it's knocking at the door and trying to get you to open it is because you're doing such a good job. And the solution is not don't do too good of a job because it's going to knock at the door. Right? Go super quickly so there's no room for it to come in. So there's no time for it to come. The solution is we have to intensify our efforts, intensify our concentration, intensify our joy. If I had one soul, the soul that was praying was the soul that was getting distracted. So the fact that I'm getting distracted means I'm not praying. But says the Altadeva, no, we have two souls. And if I'm doing up good, if I'm if I am praying, and I'm getting distracted, it's a compliment. Just a good compliment. I'm doing a good job. He gives an analogy. The analogy that he gives on page 322. He says, imagine you have a person praying. And. Another person intentionally comes to distract him. Now, imagine we're not talking about souls. I'm praying in my animal soul. It's a very abstract idea. Um, you know, animal soul, divine soul, trying to internalize and understand these concepts could be very abstract. And he gives an, an, an analogy that really, the more I think about this analogy, it, it hits home. It really does hit home. And we'll soon see why. You have a person praying. Let's read it in his words. It's the, the middle bold paragraph on page 322. The situation is comparable to a case of a man praying with concentration, and the nasty heathen stands next to him and tries to distract him by talking and mouthing at him. So imagine you're praying, and instead of the animal soul distracting you, it's a person distracting you. So what should you do? In this case, says the Altareb, the best thing to do is definitely not to respond to the antagonist neither positively nor negatively. So number one, don't answer him. He doesn't deserve to be answered. You're praying. And if you're praying, you don't have to open the door to him. He doesn't, he, he's not welcome. This person distracting you is not welcome. Okay, so what if it's not a nasty heathen? What if it's your best friend? Okay, the, so, so the Indian, good question. In the analogy, he's talking about somebody intentionally trying to distract him. Okay, intentionally, all right. Right? If somebody's not intentionally trying to distract you, so they, they didn't realize you were praying or, or don't know the significance of it or, or whatever it is. But the animal soul, go back to not the analogy, but the word, the analog, the pray word. Hmm? Go back to not the analogy, but the analog. What, what we're giving the analogy for, the animal soul. The animal soul is intentionally trying to distract us. The evil inclination is intentionally trying to distract us. The example that it gives is imagine a human being was distracting you. What makes that analogy so special to me is that it really promotes the idea of externalizing the animal soul. So important. It's so important. He says, imagine instead of your animal soul, it was an external person. Did you have any control over that person knocking on your door, trying to distract you intentionally during prayer? No, it's not your fault. He sees you praying. He sees you connecting. He wants to stop you. That's his problem. Don't let him in. Don't respond to him. Even if you have a good response, he doesn't deserve our response. It's not our fault. It's beautiful. This is really, you know, th there's a concept, narrative I, therapy. I have a question. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'll listen. What? So, so what happens if this person knocking on your door 
is somebody who needs help and you being very selfish and not opening the door to help them, how do you know that that person's intentionally not distracting you and it's not important? Okay. So good, good question. It, so we're, we're using that just as an analogy for the animal soul. And the reason why we use that analogy is because we're trying to depict how that the animal soul distracting us is not me. I'm not a bad person. Yeah. It's the animal soul that's distracting me. So there's, there's a concept of narrative therapy instituted in, I think, by the, it was developed in the 90s by a, a psychologist with the last name White, one of the only non-Jewish psychologists out there <laughs> who made it into the textbooks. No, I'm kidding. Um, I forgot his first name. And the concept of narrative therapy is that there's a problem, and the problem is the way I perceive it, but I could rewrite my own story, and I could have this whole you know, cognitive restructure. I could restructure my whole cognition, my whole understanding of the situation, of the narrative. And in narrative therapy, it's strongly believed that you have to externalize problems. So a person who experiences depression, God forbid, instead of saying, I'm depressed, no, you're not. You're Josh, you're not depressed. You have depression. Give your depression a name, Bob. Bob, the depressed, annoying person is knocking at my door again. Okay, Bob, leave me alone. It externalizes it. It's not me, it's something that I have. It's not who I am, it's what I have. And it's what this is exactly what we're doing with the animal soul by giving the analogy of a human being, of a person. When we're getting distracted during prayer, we're telling the animal soul, this is not who I am. This is just something you're doing to me. And I don't have to accept that I've, I, have a, I have the right to reject it. I can reject it if I'd like. Let's take a look. We don't have the sheets printed out, but I'm going to share my screen with you. Interesting insight that I came across. We mentioned it earlier, actually, in one of our earlier classes, but I brought it up again because I, I, I think it's fascinating. Um, can you guys see my screen? Yeah, we can see it. Okay, perfect. Okay. So this is an excerpt from the book of Samuel. Uh, second book of Samuel, chapter 12, verse 4. It's a dialogue between Nassan, the prophet, Nathan, King David. Nassan, Nathan, the prophet, is rebuking King David. And he's saying, King David, you did something wrong, you did something bad, you did something evil, and I'm going to give you an analogy. And the analogy that Nathan gives, we'll soon see the Talmud, Rashi quotes the Talmud, or, or explains the Talmud, explains that the analogy he gave them was an analogy for the evil inclination. And he says, one day a traveler came to the rich man, but he was reluctant to take anything from his own flocks or herds to prepare a meal for this guest, who was the traveler who had come to him. So a traveler comes to this rich man, and the rich man says, I don't really want to take anything from me to feed you. You know, I'm going to spend my own money feeding you. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. This wealthy person fed the traveler, the guest, right? From the poor man's money, not his own. And Nathan, Nathan the prophet, was rebuking King David and saying how he did something similar. Um, now, the point in bringing this verse is not so much what King David did. We can talk about that later another time. But what's interesting is the person in this narrative kept changing. First, he was a traveler who came to the rich man. The rich man didn't want to prepare from his own flock, from his own money to feed the guest. He's not a traveler anymore. Now he's a guest. <laughs> so he took the poor man's food and then he prepared it for the man. Now he's not a traveler anymore. He's not even a guest. He's a man. You see the change here? Within, the ver within one verse, This guy was a traveler, a guest, and then ultimately the man. So Rashi explains, and this is based on the Talmud, 
No, son, this is the second text here, text two. Rashi says, the commentary Rashi, based on the Talmud, says that Nassan compared the evil inclination at first to a traveler that is quickly going on his way. Afterwards, he's compared to a guest that has become a resident. And afterwards, he's compared to the man who's the owner of the house. This is exactly what the evil inclination, what the animal soul does. He starts off as a guest. He's knocking at the door. Sorry, as a traveler, he's knocking at the door. We let him in, and he becomes a guest. He starts to reside with us. And ultimately, he becomes the owner of the house, the man. He starts taking over us. He starts taking us over. Does he actually own us? No. Is he actually a guest on our home? That's our choice. If we let him in, we could kick him out. Our goal is to get him back to being a traveler. Externalize. Negative impulse. Externalize the animal soul. This is so important to realize it's not who I am. It's just some guy that's bothering me. That's fine. I'm not a bad person. Make sense? Yeah, I really like, I like how this is uh, laid out here. It's, uh... It just make, it make, it makes it really clear to me. Okay, wonderful. Wonderful. This seems, when I first read this, I'm not really into, realizing the connection. I thought, isn't he supposed to help the traveler? And uh, giving him the poor man stuff instead of his own stuff? So that, that was his rebuke to King David. He was, he was giving, King, so King David said, who was this man? That is not feeding the, the poor man and taking that is not feeding the traveler and taking from the poor man and Nasan says, Oh, that was you because you did whatever it was, whatever their their dialogue was. But Rashi and, and the Talmud says this is also an analogy for the evil inclination, this traveler. Because the evil inclination starts off as a traveler, ends up being a guest, makes himself comfortable and ultimately tries to take over. So so then how how was uh David's supposed so if this is an analogy for that, then when the traveler comes first, then what was he supposed to do? If the traveler is this evil inclination, and then uh, David let the, not only let the traveler in, he uh, let him become master of the house. So what was he supposed to do to the traveler? Tell him to go away? And if so, how do you know which travelers to send away and which ones you're supposed to welcome and, and share with? and? Uh, and, uh, you know, allow in. Okay, great question. Great question. Good question. How do I know if when I'm getting this knock on the door, it's the evil inclination, maybe it's a good thing, right? When the pop-up comes on my computer, how do I know it's bad and I should exit it right away? Maybe it's something that's beneficial. Maybe it's something, maybe it's a call for, like, like Sharon, you asked a similar question. Maybe it's somebody that needs help. Maybe it's a good question. In other words, how do I know if a distraction is a distraction, or maybe it's how do I know if it's coming from the animal soul or forward or from the divine soul? Any thoughts? Well, I mean, it it does make it difficult to apply um, the concept of uh, just if something is distracting, you don't even address it, right? Um, because until you do address it, you won't know whether it's coming from the animal soul or the divine soul. Will it be because of when it comes? Okay, good. I like that line of thinking. That that's so like like Linda saying that's kind of what I was thinking. If you're in the middle of prayer, the middle of your relationship with God, and a thought comes to mind that's not relevant, then it's likely a distraction. Likely not there to help you. So the fire alarm, you know, you're, you're, you're davening, and then the fire alarm goes off, telling you that you've got to go, that that, this, that fire alarm is a distraction, or is it uh, time to go? Well, think about it this way. If you're stuck in a fire, you're, never, you're not going to be able to continue praying. Exactly. So but, but so it's not, it's, you have so to it's, give it attention. You have to... Hundred percent. No, no, a hundred percent. But when it comes to a thought that doesn't, there's certain thoughts that don't belong, and there's certain thoughts that do. So, 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 for example, like, like uh, Lawrence, you you gave actually a physical example of an exterior, uh, you know, is some, something exterior to yourself that's happening. 
I was thinking of, for example, like, oh, in the middle of praying the Amidah, suddenly a thought comes, oh, I forgot to give tzedakah today, right? That's a holy thing, you know, it, it, that, that's a mitzvah to give tzedakah, but somehow it crept into my, into my head as I was davening the Amidah. Okay, it's certainly not, un, it, it's certainly not um, a, a bad thought, it's just a misplaced timely thought, you know, misplaced in time kind of thing. Um, right. Right. So it's, uh, I mean, in that case, it's not something that you want to say, don't address it. It's just like, I, okay, don't address it at the moment. Um, exactly. In other words, if you know, let's put it this way. Let's say you do know it's a distraction. <laughs> so now what am I supposed to do? So if I do know it's a distraction, I don't know if it's a distraction. Yeah, Exactly. So once I know it's a distraction, it doesn't deserve my attention. Okay. So what happens if you get, you know, sometimes you, when you're doubling, you're in a good space and you get an aha moment and you just work through all your last questions and it makes you feel so good and you kind of figured out the world and you just, and it says, so you've got to carry on with the sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Look, that's what it is. It's if you want to solve the world's problems, do the Amida. You'll get all these good ideas to come. Uh, it, that's what happens. And, and and so, by the way, when we say when we said in the beginning of the of the chapter, we said a person's praying, and there's inappropriate thoughts, or what he the way he translated it is fantasizing about physical indulgences or other inappropriate thoughts. Um, the Hebrew word for inappropriate thoughts, you look back on page 318, the first bold line. The Hebrew word for inappropriate thoughts is machshavot zarot. Are you looking right now? Page 318, the first bold line. Um, it's in the middle of the page. Oh, it's on the second line. Yeah, so it, it would be the second line in the English, um, or, no, no, or actually he... third line. Third. Third slash fourth line uh, of, the bold, of the bold paragraph it says inappropriate thoughts. So if you look in the Hebrew, which oh, is I'm the, sorry, I was looking at the very top of the page where it's all Hebrew. It's the second. Oh uh, no 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 no. Oh, so if you look fine. at the if you look at the Hebrew in the, in the middle of the page, it says Shavot Zarot, which he translates as inappropriate thoughts. It's a valid translation. It's a good translation. But what what the literal translation would be is foreign thoughts. They're not necessarily bad. They're just inappropriate for the time. So you have lustful thoughts, fantasizing thoughts about um, indulgences, which are actually bad. And then you have inappropriate thoughts. They're inappropriate because it's just wrong timing. So I'm in the middle of the Amidan, like Mike's example. Oh, I didn't give charity yet. I didn't give tzedakah yet. Or, or like Sharon said, I'm in the middle of the Amidah, and I just worked out everything. <laughs> That needed to be worked out. The idea, I have the perfect idea, and it's just, it's beautiful. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing, but the timing is not good. So now we have to wonder where that's coming from. But I'll, I'll tell you this. If you're in the middle of the Amidah, and what comes to mind is not a physical indulgence, but, oh, no, I didn't give Tzedaka, not too bad. <laughs> Too bad. Don't worry. <laughs> You're in a good place. <laughs> it's not the right timing for that thought. You're right, but it's there are worse thoughts out there, right? But if a person is in the middle of the Amidah and a lustful thought comes in, or a thought that's an indulgent, it's just not the right time, not the right place. It's a thought that would perhaps is never the right time or right place. One of those. <laughs> hard on Yom Kippur doing the Amidah and your stomach starts growling. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the Alter Rebbe's advice is several steps here. Number one, it, it doesn't deserve our attention. We don't have to actually open the door. Once we realize that it's a distracting thought, once we realize that it's an inappropriate, that it's an inappropriate thought, you could ask, you could ask, you could open the door and say who is it right but but you don't have to open the door you don't have to let him in number two 
The fact that he's knocking on the door intentionally trying to distract us is a compliment. Because that means I've been doing a good job. The animal soul wants to distract me because I'm doing a good job. Challenging me. Number three, the Altadeva says this is no different than an external person intentionally trying to stop us. Implying that the animal soul is something external. It's not who I am. Let's not take personal responsibility and start feeling all guilty. Because it's not who I am. It's not me. It's just something. I'm the divine self. We'll talk more about this in chapter 29, but that I'm just the divine self. When, when you said um, you're doing something and the animal soul is challenging you, is that like the satan? Yeah. Same idea. That, um, the satan is kind of the same figure, but just in a different context. Says there's the eight Sahara, the end, or, or the evil inclination who tries to entice you to sin, and then the same guy comes dressed as the prosecutor, and that's what the Satan would be prosecutes you in the next world, if you will, once he's got you to sin. Um, so that's, I guess, that's kind of just contextual. Now, what happens? What happens if I start responding to these negative thoughts? Even if they're good responses, and I start arguing, I start getting into a dialogue. I just got exactly what it wanted, distracted it. Right? Remember back in school, back in our elementary school days, we start distracting, we start calling out in class, throwing the paper airplanes, the spitballs. And you have certain teachers that will just totally shut you down, get out of the class or stop it, whatever it is. And you say, why? It, no, stop. No, why? And then you have the teacher that's not as strong and you say, why? And they start getting into dialogue, into an argument. The teacher lost because that's exactly what you wanted. <laughs> that attention, that distraction, it worked. Is that kind of like um, letting you get your foot in the door, kind of? Exactly, exactly. So that's what we do. As soon as we argue with the animal soul, even if it's a valid argument, we just let it get, we allowed its foot in the door. Instead of just leaving it locked and ignoring it. And it, would have go, it would have gone away. And here's what the outside episode says. The last pay, uh, bold line, last bold paragraph on the bottom of 322. He says, so don't react in any way to an inappropriate thought during prayer with any internal argument or dialogue. Here's the, here's the line. For in wrestling with a filthy person, you become filthy too. The animal soul, what happens when you fight with an animal? You begin to smell like the animal, right? <laughs> when we fight with something, somebody that's filthy, we become filthy. We're stooping down to their level. And when we get into dialogue with the animal soul, begin we already lost the battle because we let it in our home we let an animal that we don't want in our home into our home our own mental home an emotional home into our emotional space when it's not something we want there at least not at this time during prayer In the last section here, bottom of 323. Okay, let's say I'm trying to really just block it out of my mind. And I'm just not succeeding. I'm doing everything that the Altareb, the author of Tanya, is telling me to do. Intensify my efforts, increase in joy, take it as a compliment, which will motivate me. Block it out, don't think about it. Continue doing the right thing, just don't open the door. But he's just knocking louder and louder and louder, and the pounding is... And it's getting more enticing to open. What am I going to do? I just can't. At some point, I'm going to cave in and open. What do I do? So here's what he says. He says, well, you happen to be praying, right? <laughs> so talk to God. Ask him to help you. But here's the interesting thing. 
The reason why God will help you is because it's in God's best interest. Look at the last, pair, the last line of page 323. Implore him, God, to do it, to help you, not because of your merit, but for his own sake. It's in God's best interest to help you. Because for his people are literally a part of God, as it says in Deuteronomy. We have a soul which is part and parcel with him. It's being clouded. It's being overtaken. It's being challenged by this animal soul. The divine soul is a part of him, so it affects him. You say, God, it's really just your best interest to help, in your best interest to help me. I'm trying to keep my divine soul in its most pristine purity, trying to pray, trying, trying to connect, trying to increase my passion, my relationship with you. Trying to preserve, preserve the part within me that is part and parcel with you. God, this directly affects you. It's not about me. It's in your best interest to help me. Thoughts, comments, controversy. So, how, how does have how does God have a a best interest or? <laughs> How could how could God not have a best interest? I mean, isn't every interest of God best? Best. <laughs> in other words, why would He send the animal soul in the first place? Or you know, why why would uh, I guess what, what what could it matter to God in some sense? What um, I mean, this goes back to the beginning. I, I guess it's a distraction, but uh, you know. How how could something be in God's best interest or not be in God's best interest? It's kind of a question, but I guess I think it's from my standards. There's a tillum which uh, King David, I, I think it's King David, says uh, what you is uh, a body in the grave because they can't pray to God. So kind of similar. One more time, what does he say? Says, I don't remember exactly or the, the verse, but it says something like, what use is the body in the grave? It's, it can't um, pray to God. Like, okay, you're saying, uh, right. well, to... Yeah, so... I don't know. I guess it sounds similar. I'm thinking more the along the lines of... Yeah, I, I was thinking more along the lines of that um, God is... Uh, is joyful when we overcome our obstacles. And so in order for God to have the most joy that he can, it's in his best interest to make sure or to assist us when we are unable to achieve it on our own. He gives us that helping hand to overcome the obstacle, which will increase his joy. In that regards, it's you know you could well, well put and well put as we said earlier in chapter thirteen, uh, we quoted a line from the Talmud that you basically you can't overpower the animal soul with evil inclination without God's help. So everything God does is in His best interest. In other words, if God sent me an animal soul, maybe it's in His best interest that I that I get overtaken and overpowered by, it. but. That's what he wants. He wants an animal soul to challenge us, and he wants us to win that challenge. But it can't be without his help. Is this is this part of Does this have to do with us being part of God, like it says at the very bottom? Because we're actually a part of God, so it is in his best interest for us to succeed. Because it directly affects us. It gives us, it gives him a strength to, for him to be with us, right? We're stronger when he's there. Exactly. I, I found the Tehillim, it's, it's uh, 30. It says, what profit is there in my death and going down to the grave can just praise you, can it proclaim your truth? Well, like this sounds in a similar way, like what, what's in it for Hashem? What's in it for me? <laughs> you know what? If God forbid child to 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 go through something traumatic god forbid get sick god forbid god forbid we would all be praying 
right? We're one community. But if it was, God forbid, somebody's own child, it's a lot more relevant. It's a lot more. We're going to do whatever it takes. We're not just going to say a prayer. We're going to go all out there and do whatever we can. And and that's kind of what we're saying with God. God, we have a soul which is part and parcel with you. We're essentially your children. You got to do whatever it takes. This is personal. It's personal. Personal. Exactly. Once we frame it that way, now God knows that. He needs us to explain that to him, but he wants us to know that. Once we do know that, okay, there we go. Now you know that we're running. Now together, I'm going to help you. Gives us strength. Now that we come to that realization, that will give us strength. Realizing who we are, even running up times. my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Good story. <laughs> I'll stop the recording. Bye.